cool to be here, right? I, can I tell you, if we haven't had the chance to meet Phil, I'm part of the team here at True North, and I love Sunday gatherings. I love gathering together around the hope that we share in who Jesus is. And, uh, and this morning, we're, we're actually come to the end of our Community of the King series. Has anyone been enjoying this over the last few weeks? I've been loving this. This is a great series. And, uh, and if you're new here, if you're joining us online, we've been, uh, we've been tracking through 1 Corinthians. So this is the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, and over the last few weeks, we've been kind of journeying through that. And as we get into it today, it's helpful to remind ourselves that whenever we read a letter from the New Testament, we're actually reading one half of a conversation. It's one half of the correspondence, that everything that Paul communicates throughout 1 Corinthians, it's actually triggered by some real things that are happening within that church community at Corinth. And so each week as we've been coming to the text and coming to the passages, we've got to remind ourselves that that this is a real guy writing a real letter to a real group of people. And always the different chapters that we focus on, there's, there's an issue, there's a problem, there's something happening within the church community that Paul wants to bring formation into, that Paul wants to speak into. And, uh, and this morning, we're going to get into 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Anyone got a Bible here today? Come on, you've got it on some kind of digital device. I'm seeing some thumbs up, some smiles around the place. Anyone got an old school print Bible here this morning? If you've got a print Bible, can you shake it for me? Just flap it around a little bit. Make sure you don't hit your neighbor. They've got a bit of weight, some of them, depending on how much you like your commentary sections and things. But, but it's so good to get into Scripture together. And I love that, that part of what it means to gather as a church is to actually encourage one another through God's Word. So we're going to do that in chapter 15 this morning. And to begin with, we're going to try to locate together what is the problem that Paul wants to speak into the Corinthian church in this, uh, in this passage of Scripture. So what we're going to do, we're going to jump in to to verse 12. And in verse 12, we see a glimpse of what Paul's going to speak into through this whole passage. And here's how it begins. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So here's the key issue captured in this verse right here, that Paul's saying, if we have preached, if the gospel story is centered in the reality that Jesus is risen, does anyone believe that this morning? That Jesus is risen, he's resurrected, he is the risen king, and through his resurrection, we have renewed life in him, we have eternal life in him for those that place their faith in Christ Jesus through grace. But then Paul's identified that at least a portion of the Corinthian church has stopped believing in eternity. They've stopped believing that there's a resurrection. They only think that Jesus is about what He can do to improve the quality of my life right now, right here. They've lost their eternal perspective. And then Paul goes a little further. And he says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so are you. That's not exactly what he says. He says, and so so is your faith. But, But Paul, you know, he has these lines every now and again where you're just like, geez, he's a really loving, pastoral kind of guy as he's offering his opinion to the church. But he speaks with a huge amount of strength here. He's saying, if there's no resurrection, guys, what are we doing here? If there's no resurrection, if Christ even wasn't raised, what is the church are we doing here? Now, what Paul's identified within the church at Corinth 
is that they've lost their eternal perspective. And this morning, the, the title of my message as we reflect together on this passage of Scripture is simply The Eternal Perspective. You know, one of the things that defines the community of the King as we reflect on this series and what it means to be the church led by Jesus is that the community of the King is invited, is commissioned to live with an eternal perspective. That that's something that defines who we are as followers of Jesus, like no other group, like no other community, like no other tribe, that we are defined by a perspective that goes beyond, a perspective that stretches to eternity. Now, eternity is a real big idea, right? To have an eternal perspective is a very long-range perspective. And so I sympathize with the church at Corinth that, that so often I find it hard to live with even a long-view perspective of my life as to living now to what's going to be going on in five years' time. You know, for the first time in the last couple of months, I've started thinking about superannuation. So I'm, I'm in my, uh, I'm 37 and I've begun thinking about superannuation. And if you start thinking about superannuation, one thing is sure, that you are starting to get old. <laughs> and I put myself in that bracket. But, but there, you know, there could be some other young men and women that are far smarter than me, and you're thinking about your super early, good on you, Tyler, I expect that's something like you. But, but one of the things that I struggle with is I reflect, reflect on having a longer view of life. I, I'm kind of told the superannuation, that's a really important thing. Be invested in that, that's a really smart investment. It's something that's going to give a good return with very low risk, uh, I guess, depending on the different variables and things that you choose. But, but super, it's a good thing to think about. But here's the problem with super, right? If I invest in my super, it's this kind of, for me as a 37-year-old, it's kind of this ambiguous pile of money that one day in a few decades' time is going to make a difference in my life. So it's hard to think and get excited about that because it's such a long way away. Then even more so, when we think as followers of Jesus, we're called to live our lives today shaped by an eternal reality of who Christ is, what He's done, and what is coming when our days on this earth are gone. It's a difficult thing to locate and make tangible in our lives. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is going to do his best to help bring that perspective of eternity back to the church. And I believe that the Spirit of God preserves this letter, preserves this chapter in Scripture for the church of all time to take hold of and be called back to an eternal perspective shaped and grounded in who Jesus is and the story of His gospel. And this is where Paul begins. So now we're going to go back to verse 1. And here's how Paul begins. He says, Now, brothers and sisters... I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. So Paul's saying as he considers this lack of eternal perspective, he says that perspective, it starts, it is sustained by, and it finds fulfillment in the gospel. Nothing more, nothing less. So he says, if you're struggling with this, this idea of having an eternal perspective as a follower of Jesus, here's where we've got to start. We've got to start with the gospel. The gospel that you have received. And in the words of Paul here in verse 1 and 2, he says that you have taken your stand upon. And what he's describing is the gospel story has been told to this group of believers. They've received the gospel story. They've placed their faith in who Jesus is. And in doing so, have taken their stand based on the gospel that they have received. And then Paul continues... By this gospel, you are saved. 
by the gospel, by the story of Jesus as God's redeeming plan for all of mankind. You have been saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. You know, I believe the, the reason that Paul takes, takes the Corinthian church straight to this idea of gospel is because the gospel is the great perspective changer. That when you receive the gospel in your life, it changes your life. It changes your perspective. It changes the framework through which we approach life. You know, when, I, when we think about these verses, sometimes it's, it's helpful, sometimes it's enlightening to, to go back to the original language that Paul used. So 1 Corinthians, it was written in ancient Greek, and the word that he originally use, uses to, for us to later get to this translated word, gospel, is euangelion. Euangelion. Anyone want to have a turn saying that? Come on, we're going to count to three, we're going to try this. Euangelion, one, two, three. That, that was flawless, ancient Greek. That was just fantastic. Now, I, actually, I've never done a Greek unit, so I don't totally know. Pastor Dean can uh, let us know how we went last week, uh, next week. But, but this idea of a, of a euangelion, and, and the word, the Greek word was actually comprised of two words with two meanings. And the first was you, which was good, and the second angelion, which was message or news. So this idea of the gospel as being a good message or a good news. Does anyone have a good news Bible growing up? Anyone rocking a good news Bible right now? They're pretty old school now. But, but that's where this whole idea comes from. The good news of Jesus is grounded in the original word that Paul uses here, the euangelion. But there's something we can take away with this if we go a little bit deeper into the world that Paul lived in. Now, this word euangelion, it was always used in a particular context, that it wasn't just good news, that it wasn't just a good story, that it wasn't just a good message, but it was good news proclaimed. The euangelion always meant a proclamation of good news. If you take yourself back to the, the ancient city of Corinth, this kind of good news would be the good news that would have been proclaimed on a bustling street corner. The euangelion was a proclamation of good news. It was a telling of the story of Jesus. It was a living out of the story of Jesus, that the gospel is only the gospel when it is proclaimed. And when we as followers of Jesus, as the community of the King, begin to live centered in a proclamation of who Jesus is through who we are gathered, through who we are scattered, what we're actually doing is beginning to live with an eternal perspective, shaped by what the gospel is. You know, when I reflect on this idea of gospel, for, for many of us here this morning that have been in church for, for maybe a, a long time, you, you come with a lot of preloaded words to describe and define the gospel, and a lot of what I've shared even this morning is perhaps familiar with you. But something that I think is helpful is to hold the two ideas of the gospel and salvation in two separate hands for a moment. Because sometimes when we reflect on each and we, we define each in our mind, we'll use similar things to describe both of them. Now, what I think is helpful is to draw a distinction for a moment between what the gospel is and what salvation is. Now, the gospel, as we know, is a proclamation of the story of Jesus Christ as the redeeming work of the Father, that through Jesus, through His death, through His resurrection, through His ascension, He is the redeeming plan of God, the Messiah sent by the Father to repair the broken relationship between Creator and creation. 
the gospel story real quick. That the gospel story is the story of who Jesus is. The story of God's redeeming work for, on behalf of all mankind. Now, what the gospel produces when we place our faith in the gospel story is salvation. So that when we place our faith in the story of Jesus that has been proclaimed, that has been told, we are led to a place of salvation by faith through grace. Yeah, everyone with me still so far? That the gospel story is proclaimed when we receive it, we can take our stand in the words of Paul here in verse 2. We can take our stand upon it, and at that moment, we receive salvation. Now, who here this morning is a follower of Jesus? You made a decision at some point in your life to, to say, I am placing my faith in the name that is above every name. I'm following Jesus. Now, my guess is, at some point in your life, the gospel story was told to you. Maybe in a church a little bit like this. Maybe in a conversation with a friend. That at some point in your life, you heard the gospel story, you received the gospel story, and based on receiving that story you placed your faith in who Jesus is. Who would say that's an accurate description of, of how you came to place your faith in Christ? That you heard the gospel, and he said, and something came alive in your heart. The Spirit of God began moving within you, and by faith through grace, you discovered salvation in your life. Now, the reason I draw so much attention to this and labor it somewhat is because it's really important to consider the effect of living out of the gospel versus living out of salvation. Now, one of the things, if we live out of salvation, worst case scenario, we can be living with just like a, an ins eternal life insurance policy. Like if I'm living out of my salvation, I, I know that there's brokenness in me. I know that sins had an impact on my life. I know that God sent Jesus to take care of that so I can have eternal life in Him, renewed life in Him. And if I live out of my salvation, I, I'm going to be a pretty joyful person because I know what God's done in me. I know what Jesus has done in me. But living out of the gospel, that's something else entirely. Because living out of the gospel means living to proclaim the story of Jesus. You see the difference between those two things. You see the difference in how it shapes perspective for how we operate as people of faith. That, that we are invited as the shared community of the King to live out of the gospel. You know, for the early church leaders and apostles like Paul, this idea took over their entire life. And when I reflect on someone like Paul, I, I look at him, I say, there's a guy that is just living a gospel life. And I love that phrase as a, as a helpful point of reference as we consider a perspective that's grounded in the eternal. That everything that Paul did, he went from place to place, carrying this eternal perspective shaped by what the gospel is, to proclaim in every ounce of his being that Jesus is the redeeming work of the Father. And through Christ, we can have relationship with the Father. He lived the gospel life. And the fruit of that gospel life as people received that gospel life, was salvation. Now, here's something that we've got to really wrestle with as the community of the King today. If the gospel stops being proclaimed, salvation stops happening. That if the gospel's no longer proclaimed in communities like ours, salvation's no longer going to happen. Because the gospel has to be proclaimed for salvation to occur. 
as we reflected on each of our own individual journeys of faith, we know that at one point the gospel was proclaimed and it produced salvation in your life and changed you forever. So the community of the king, we're called, we're commissioned to live that kind of a gospel life with a mindset of eternity and the eternal difference that the gospel makes. That's what the community of the kings invited to be about. So Paul goes a little bit further in verse 3, and he begins to describe, okay, this kind of gospel life that's, that's really taken over who I am, that I live my life now as an expression of who Jesus is. And here's how he describes it, again, to the church at Corinth. For what I received, this is in verse 3, he's talking about the gospel, the story of Jesus. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. It's first importance. This gospel that I received, I give it to you of first importance, of highest importance. And Paul's going to now briefly summarize the center point of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He's pointing back towards the Old Testament and prophets like Isaiah that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, again, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, and then to the Twelve, and if you read a little bit further, to, to over 500 of the early followers of Jesus, that Christ died for our sins. He takes us to this center point of what the Gospel is. Now, we all kind of understand that the forgiveness of sins is, is kind of at the center of the Christian faith, right? That, that, you know, if we put our faith in Jesus, we're accepting that the sin in me, the brokenness in me, it's been forgiven. So that when God the Father looks at who I am, He doesn't see any of that sin anymore. He sees Christ in me. And praise God, that is true of my life. Praise God that that's true of your life if you placed your faith in Christ in the story of the gospel. That my sins have been forgiven. But when someone like Paul uses that phrase in a letter like 1 Corinthians... What's he really talking about? So I think sometimes we can have a pretty one-dimensional view about what the forgiveness of sins in our life really means. That we might think that, yeah, I was, you know, me plus sin equals separation from God. Then me plus the grace of Jesus equals connection to God. And we have a, a, a rough equation for salvation in our life that we know is anchored in the, the capacity of Jesus to forgive our sins. But the idea of our sins being forgiven, our sins being taken away, is actually a far bigger reality for who we are as individuals. Now, when Paul used a phrase like this, it's sometimes helpful to locate some other scriptures and some other passages to bring another layer of depth as to what he was actually talking about. To help do this this morning, I want to take you to Galatians 4. Uh, verses 4 to 6, and this is Paul speaking now to another church in Galatia, and he says this, but when the set time had fully come, he's talking about God's plan for redemption in the giving of the Son. Now, when that set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, to redeem me, to redeem you, that we might receive, listen to this, adoption to sonship, to childhood, because you are his sons, his daughters, and God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father. And if you're not familiar with that word, that, that Abba, it's a, a word of an intimate connection between the child and the father, that when Christ died for our sins, 
we are adopted into his family. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul builds this idea even further. After giving us a list of some of the the brokenness, some of the, the sinful realities that can sometimes define the human experience, he goes on to say, and that is what some of you were once, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So when Paul uses an expression that your sins are forgiven, he's really building this idea that we are justified, that we are sanctified, that we are redeemed, that we are renewed, and that we are adopted children of God. That it's not just the the sins are forgiven and now we're no longer in judgment under God, but now we are invited into his family. That when I think and speak to God, the king of all kings, the creator of the universe, the word that most appropriately describes my connection to him is dad. That's what the forgiveness of sins is. It's not just a renewing, it's not just a justifying, but it's now I'm a part of the family. And this is what Paul wants us to understand. To live out of the gospel means to live with an understanding that I'm now a child of the Most High God. And that changes our perspective. It changes how we approach life. So Paul, in this section, he died for our sins. And he locates four key moments. That's the absolute center of the gospel story. That, that Jesus did die upon the cross. That's the the part that we're very familiar with. He died upon the cross for our sins. That something about Jesus going to the cross atoned for the sin in my life, redeemed the sin in my life, and renewed who I am as a holy child under the Most High God. But then Jesus was buried for three days, buried with our sin. You know, sometimes when we reflect on this part of the gospel narrative, we kind of think that the three days, it was kind of like a quiet three days, that, that Jesus is in the tomb, there's not too much going on, the, the, the early followers of Jesus, they were in a time of grief and loss, trying to reconcile what was happening, but when it comes to Jesus, we, we don't often reflect too much on what was happening during those three days, but as Jesus was buried with our sin, in the unseen, in the spiritual realms, Jesus is at work taking away the power of sin and death. That Jesus in those three days is buried with our sin as in, and is in the process of defeating it once and for all. Then on the third day, he's resurrected. He's resurrected. His life is renewed and that moment is symbolic of his victory during that three days of burial, that he spends three days with my sin and emerges victorious, the resurrected Christ, so that I might have resurrected, renewed life as well. And then Jesus appears. He appears to the early church. He sits around fireplaces and eats fish. They see the wounds in his hand, in his side. He appears to over 500 people, eyewitnesses, until finally he ascends after commissioning the community of the king to go forth and proclaim his gospel. That Jesus, through that central point, completely redeems, completely renews. Now here's the mistake that that I've sometimes made over the years, that when I reflect on the gospel and when I reflect on what it means to live out of the gospel, that I minimize the scope of the gospel to those three days, 
Do you want to think about the gospel story? Yeah, the gospel story, that's, that's from like Good Friday to Easter Sunday, right? That's where we find the gospel story. But the reality is, the gospel story is significantly wider than those three days. Those three days are the center point, don't get me wrong, they're incredibly significant and that's why Paul focuses on them so strongly in this passage as he takes the church back to the gospel. That's the center point, the death, resurrection of Jesus. But the gospel story is actually wider. I believe the gospel story begins the moment sin enters into the world. It's described in the story of Adam and Eve. That from the moment there was separation between Creator God and His creation, the gospel story started. It's God's rescue story to reunite Creator and creation. All of God's Word is that story playing out. The resurrection of Christ, that's the center point. But the gospel's actually wider. It begins in creation. And the gospel story will keep being told until Christ comes again and all things are made new. Now, what I love about that picture is that the gospel story, it's not something that happened between Good Friday and Easter Sunday that I am now invited to respond to as a follower of Jesus. That's not what the gospel story is. The gospel story is a story that is still being told, still being proclaimed, that I am invited to write a chapter within. That my life as a proclamation of the ongoing story of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is still being told to this day. That the community of the king, we're commissioned to continue to tell that story because the story is not over. That every time someone places their faith in Jesus for the first time, that story is being told. New chapters are being written. And as a church, God invites us to never stop proclaiming that gospel, to never lose our eternal perspective and to recognize that the gospel story is still being told and I need to be part of that story. That's what Jesus is taking the church at Corinth back by the Spirit of God here in this place, anointing His Word. That's what He invites us to take hold of anew again, to proclaim the gospel, to be a people that proclaim the story of who Jesus is. So my life as His story. My life is the story of His great gospel to continue proclaiming, to continue telling, to continue living out of it. Now, I'm going to invite the, the team to come back and join me. And I want to lead us this morning in a particular moment. You know, I've, I've spent some time in this passage over the last couple of weeks. And, and I want to tell you something very real that I experienced last week as I was preaching this message at our Malalu campus. I really felt God leading me to a place of repentance. That, that I felt that sometimes I wasn't living out of that gospel life. That my life maybe wasn't proclaiming the gospel as much as Jesus was inviting me to. That I was living out of salvation, sure, in love with Jesus, in love of how he's changed my life. So keenly aware of what the gospel has done in me. But if I'm to understand that the gospel is always a proclamation of the good news of Jesus, I had God just take me to this centering point. Phil, I think there needs to be some repentance. That as part of the community of the king, you stop proclaiming the gospel. 
And God led me in that prayer last week. It was funny, I was going over my message before the morning and that's what I felt God doing. And as an overflow of that, and where God's taken us in his word this morning, I want to invite you to do the same thing. That if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you're not just invited to live out of your salvation, but you're invited to live out of his gospel, to keep telling that story of Jesus. And just in this moment, I want to invite you to close your eyes. And if you're here in this place, and and like me last week, you encounter this scripture and God does something in your heart and in your soul, I want to give you an opportunity this morning. If in a refreshed, renewed way, you want your life more and more to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, in this moment, as Paul said, verse 2, receive the gospel, now take your stand upon it. I want to invite you to take a stand upon the gospel. Say, I'm going to be a person that proclaims. And if that's you this morning, here in this moment, I just want to invite you to stand up onto your feet. And I want to include you in a prayer. So right now, in this moment, if that's you, it's time to take a renewed stand on what the gospel is. It's awesome. And if you're standing here in this place, I want to invite you to receive this prayer this morning. To recognize the Spirit of God, the presence of God here in this place. Jesus, we recognize what you have done in our life. Jesus, we placed our faith in you. God, there's salvation in our hearts. But Jesus, I ask in this moment, by your Holy Spirit, you would ignite a new story, the story of your gospel. God, I thank you that the gospel isn't something that we just get to sit on, but the gospel by its very definition is something that we live out of, something that we proclaim. And Jesus, I pray for every individual here this morning standing on their feet, God, I pray that by your spirit within them, their life would take on a new quality of proclaiming. Jesus, I pray that in every relationship they have, there would be glimpses of your story being told. That in their workplaces, through the way that they conduct themselves, for the way that they speak, Lord, that your gospel would go forth. That within their families, Lord God, amongst their friendships, that your gospel would shine more brightly, Lord God. In Matthew 5, 14, you talk about a light on a hill, a light set under a bowl. I pray that in the name of Jesus, those would be lifted and your light would shine forth in power through every individual that's taking their stand upon your gospel here this morning. Lord, may it shine brightly like a city set on a hill so that people would see their good works and glorify you, Father, who are in heaven. Holy Spirit, would you move in this place? We praise you, God. We thank you for your spirit. Praise you, Lord.